You like Huey Lewis and the news? They're okay. Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost. He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Hey, Albert. Yes, Alan? Why are there copies of the style section on the play? Do you, do you have a dog? A little chow or something? <laughs> no, Alan. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. In 87, Huey released this. Four, their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square, a song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics, but they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of friends, it's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 274, American Psycho. People are like, oh, I, I was thinking it was going to be a revisited of American Psycho 2. <laughs> Highly downloaded episode. Yes, we are the only podcast that would do American Psycho 2 first, or at all, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Which was episode 85 back on February 13th, 2018, which is disturbing that it was that recent. I, <laughs> I would have thought I that was a few more years ago. I mean, four years ago. I know, but we've yeah. been doing this since 2016. <laughs> wow. Yeah, definitely one of those movies that people knew about. I, even if you hadn't seen it, the whole thing of Christian Bale running around almost naked with a chainsaw, you just knew that that was out there. I actually saw this movie pretty early. It was on VHS, but it was probably like 2001 or two. It was pretty soon after okay, it came yeah. out. I probably didn't see it until like 05 or something. I just bought the DVD knowing that I needed to. <laughs> For people who are longtime listeners of the show and have experienced a Greatest October with our alternate theme song, there is a clip from American Psycho in... The Greatest October theme, so why are we doing it now and not in October? 
Well, I don't really think of this movie as actually being a horror movie. Yeah, not at all. In fact, how much of a comedy it really is, I think, resonates with me more each time. Probably when I first went into it, I was expecting something disturbing, and it is probably more from, like, the dialogue standpoint, though. There's nothing really, like, suspenseful about it. Even though there is deaths, the stakes don't ever really feel that high. Lot to get into with American Psycho, but before we do, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars only, only yeah. please. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like a free sticker, slide into the old DMs on Twitter and let us know, and we'll mail that out to you for free. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on there. So let's get down to it. American Psycho was released in the year 2000. In the year 2000. <laughs> Directed by Mary Heron. Screenplay by Heron and Guinevere Turner. Based on the 1991 novel of the same name by Brett Easton Ellis. Budget $7 million. Box office higher than you would think at $34.3 million. Did not really seem like this was a hit movie. No. But I guess it did fairly well. It was a truly polarizing film. One that I think continues to this day to be debated. And it's a long time topic on this show. Oh, yeah. The idea of people understanding satire and satire's place in a modern world where people don't want to dig any deeper than the most superficial readings of things i don't really remember like how this movie was marketed yeah i have no memory at all yeah yeah i vaguely just remember that it it all of a sudden existed and it seemed to me like something that would be scary yeah it's a hard movie to market especially when you factor in the intense controversy that came with the novel and everything that went down during that release and then a lot of the controversy when the film was being made and a lot of protests and all of that stuff which when you actually watch this movie it's sort of shocking because there are a lot of movies where male killers kill women but for whatever reason this one in particular it was probably because of the reputation of the book Uh and We'll talk more about the book as we go, but the book is almost revolting in its violence. It's (laughs) so over the top and horrifying that you can't even imagine it until you read it. But the movie doesn't really have anything like that. The scenes are so tame, so tame compared to what's in the book. It's not even in the same universe. Yeah, there's not really any violence that's hard to watch. The stuff that would be bad, like the camera like cuts away. It's sociopathic violence in a superficial world yeah actually like the first time i ever watched it it was kind of a surprise how stuffy it feels during a lot of the scenes and i know big part of that is this sort of yuppie world that we're living in bateman was crazy the same way i was he did not come out of me sitting down and wanting to write a grand sweeping indictment of yuppie culture it initiated because of my own isolation and alienation at a point in my life I was living like Patrick Bateman. I was slipping into a consumerist kind of void that was supposed to give me confidence and make me feel good about myself, but just made me feel worse and worse and worse about myself. 
That is where the tension of American Psycho came from. It wasn't that I was going to make up the serial killer on Wall Street, high concept, fantastic. It came from a much more personal place, and that's something that I've only been admitting in the last year or so. I was so on the defensive because of the reaction to that book that I wasn't able to talk about it on that level. And that's from Freddie Sinellis. Oh, yeah. Yes, we're dealing in satire again, this time from an unlikely source or sources because of the movie being directed by a woman and co-written by two women, the script. And so, on the one hand, a more cynical side would say that the studio went that direction to absorb some of the controversy that they thought would come. Sure. Being like, hey, look, it's a woman doing it. So we're okay here. On the other hand, it might actually be a genius move to tell this story through that lens and bring out some of the the stuff that's a little harder to gauge in the book. I definitely think it works, especially with some of the scenes that are so male-dominated and chauvinistic. They provide a female gaze. Right. You look at Christian Bale the same way that a lot of male directors would shoot an attractive woman. Yeah, yeah. Especially in that opening in the shower and everything. Doing those crunches. Thousand crunches a day. It ultimately turns into a critique on capitalism and the sickening superficiality of the consumer-driven 80s. Patrick Bateman is the monster birthed by black-hearted times. People are commodities, just like the Rolex, the luxurious New York City apartment, the designer suit. The reservations at high-end restaurants. The degradation and brutalization are merely the next logical steps in a world where humanity has no meaning. And there's this obsession with surface-level mainstream culture pop culture and the movie i think as you were saying and i think i appreciate more now as i'm older is certainly a comedy it's a comedy of manners it's a a movie about social anxiety and social one-upsmanship oh yeah more than anything else and when you're younger and you're more new to these experiences you don't quite pick up on that why it's so funny yeah yeah it's almost like a spoof on consumerism yeah and the things that set him off are so absurd (laughs) and then the music choices the music cues juxtaposed over one thing to the next (laughs) the music cues for the business card scenes are always great you're so dialed in that he's seething with jealous rage the making of the film reignited the controversy that had already existed With the release of the book, Ellis later wrote that people assumed that American Psycho would end his career. It was originally to have been published by Simon & Schuster in March 1991, but the company withdrew from the project because of aesthetic differences, mostly because of protests. Vintage Books purchased the rights to the novel and published the book after the customary editing process. The book was never actually published in hardcover in the United States until 2012 when a limited edition hardcover edition was published by Centipede Press. It's so weird that this stuff was so popular that these protests would happen. The idea that like Kevin Smith movies got protested. Yeah. It just seems wild that that was ever a thing. I know what the culture we live in now with social media and almost the mobilization that happens on the internet now, but it just seems crazy that a book coming out in, I don't know what when the original release date of 
American Psycho. 1991. Okay, so 91 people Well, were... it, it seems like it's probably more of a symptom of, of living in the monoculture when everyone's more dialed into the same stuff all at once. Yeah. And something gains traction, and there's only a couple of news channels, so it gets on the news. And then there's some feminist groups that really took umbrage with this because of the depictions of violence towards women. Oh, right. It, it gains steam. Now to a large percentage of the country was this like a big thing probably not but yeah, yeah. in places like new york and los angeles it probably had some steam i know that certain feminist groups there would sure. be like women that would go to the bookstores and dump red paint on copies of the book and oh stuff. wow it was like a whole thing it is so weird you know i'm sure brady stanellis has defended it i'm sure countless times but it, this is not really about a serial killer killing women at all. I mean, I know it's like the forefront, but that doesn't seem to be the message here at all. Yeah, and that's the whole thing with a social satire that you have to kind of go beyond the the surface level reading. The book is insane. I read it at least once or twice in my life. It's a hard book to reread just because of the long sections of weird stuff, especially the music reviews that go on for pages and pages and pages. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which are hilarious, but not the type of thing you want to like read again. Sure. I don't need to read 20 pages on Huey Lewis and the News. Wow. Or whatever it is. Yeah. There's all these chapters that'll just be like, Whitney Houston, and then there's page after page about Whitney Houston. <laughs> <laughs> it has nothing to do with the story other than to convey what's going on with this guy. What, did they take this straight from your notebooks? <laughs> <laughs> and the way that... Heron and Turner incorporate the music stuff into this movie is so genius. And it took me a while to get here to this place because as someone who reads a lot of books, or at least I used to, most of the time I would be unsatisfied with the film adaptations. But I think with American Psycho, as far as getting an R rating and everything like that and having a realistic movie... It's about as good as you're going to get from that book because most of it is impossible to make into a movie. It just is. And they really do a great job of highlighting the satire stuff in a very funny way and keeping in a lot of the other elements of the book without losing too much. And I I just think it's, it's a great adaptation, which of course is highlighted by just an unbelievable performance for sure from christian bale which i think really is career defining in a lot of ways yeah he definitely carries the movie a pretty recognizable cast all around though a lot of names popping up justin thoreau jared leto but i guess it is sort of an interesting ethical question because it is a satire there are a lot of arguments to be made which we've made countless times that depiction does not equal endorsement i think we know that we do. But is there a line that you can still push it too far? You can make an argument for that. Because if there is, then yes, this is certainly <laughs> this the book. The yeah, book okay. not the movie. Right, the movie right. is not really that extreme at all. Yeah. In a world where you have Lars von Trier and Gaspar Noe sure, and sure, all yeah. this other crazy stuff, the movie is not really that bad at all. But the book is revolting. The violence is so disgusting that you can't believe it. And it goes on for page after page after page of torture and weird shit. Oh my shit. gosh, yeah. This would be a tough read for me, Serial I think. Serial killer type stuff that is beyond the pale. And I get that the author is working out something. I, I think that in a weird way, 
Ellis was projecting a lot of his feelings about his father onto Patrick Bateman. But yeah, I can understand people being turned off by the book. I don't really support book banning or protesting books or anything sure. to that extent. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I can definitely with... see people reading this and being like, this is disgusting and yeah. not for me. I think that could potentially be my reaction to it. That would be my reaction to having to read the music chapters again. (laughs) I don't want to read about Genesis again. Oh, God. Meanwhile, the brutal violence, you're just like, yeah, this is pretty good. Yeah, whatever. I don't even want to give examples. That's how horrible it is. Wow. Which caused a lot of issues when making the film. Companies did not want to be featured in the film, so they had to say, don't touch the watch instead of don't touch the Rolex. Okay. they had to figure out like who was going to provide the suits and all that stuff because a lot of companies did not want to be associated with the film at all. Sure. Which led to music issues as well. Although the biggest cost of the film turned out to be securing the rights to the songs that they do use. But I know that Whitney Houston wanted no part of it, so they had to use like an orchestral version of The Greatest Love of All. Okay. That's not the real version oh, gotcha, of the song. Yeah. Part of the controversy really was dialed into Paul Bernardo famous Canadian serial killer from Toronto whose trial I think had taken place sometime after the release of the book. They found a copy of the book in his apartment, jumped to conclusions, Matt pulled out, everyone jumping. (laughs) And then the film ends up being shot primarily in Toronto, which reignited a lot of feelings and it was a whole thing. Sure. Initially American Psycho did earn an NC seventeen rating. They had to remove 18 seconds, mostly from the threesome scene, and there were some dialogue changes as well, although today the most widely available version is the unrated version. I don't even know if you can watch the original theatrical cut anywhere. Certainly the DVD I had was the same version that I watched getting ready for this. Patrick! What is it? Where are you going? I've got to return some videotapes. On the plus side... It's been an endless gift to meme culture, (laughs) the -the over-the-top performances, the crazy reactions to things, the insane dialogue. I know. The dialogue is so hilarious. It all lends itself to absurd memes and and crazy ideas. There's so many parts that people have used and, and gotten a lot of joy out of. So let's go through the little history to working our way up to the version of American Psycho that we all know from... 2000. Oh, yes. Another one of these movies. It began in 1992 with producer Edward R. Pressman, who, despite Ellis's thinking that the book was unfilmable, was obsessed with the project and got Johnny Depp interested. Wow. Johnny Depp was originally going to do it with none other than reanimator director Stuart Gordon at the Holy helm. Holy shit. Depp was a big fan of reanimator. Gordon wanted to shoot it in black and white and go for an NC-17 rating and just shoot it straight as the book is, which I don't know <laughs> where you were going to market this movie. Oh, you probably yeah. would have gotten banned for obscenity or With something. With the music reviews and all. After that didn't work out, David Cronenberg was attached to direct with potentially Brad Pitt as the star. Brett Easton Ellis himself was going to write the screenplay, although Cronenberg wanted all of the nightclub and restaurant stuff removed. <laughs> Yeah, that does seem weird. Oh, which is, when you first say Cronenberg, you could picture him doing a version of this. And wanted all of the violence excised from the script as well. Which seems weird for him. And wanted the script to be no more than 65 to 70 pages. 
Ellis considered these directions insane and ignored them, <laughs> right? Which led to a whole thing with more people being involved. And Ellis's draft did depart significantly from the novel, as he had been quote living with it for like three and a half, four years, and had grown bored with it. It ended with an elaborate musical sequence to Barry Manilow's Daybreak atop the World Train Center, a change which Ellis felt exemplified how bored he was with the material. So eventually, he was replaced as the writer, and then Cronenberg left when he brought on someone else to write the script and then disliked that script even more. So then the producers found Mary Heron, who had just come off of the indie film I Shot Andy Warhol. Okay. She immediately recognized something in the book that she thought she could work with. She wanted to bring out the satire, really focus on the social privilege depiction. She was working a lot with Guinevere Turner. They were actually in the middle of writing The Notorious Betty Page, which wouldn't come out until 2005. Oh, yeah. But they had kind of gotten stuck. Did she still end up directing that? I believe so, yeah. Okay. They originally had Billy Crudup. As Patrick Bateman. And he ended up leaving because he felt uncomfortable with some of the stuff in the movie. (laughs) And then Mary comes across Christian Bale, who she immediately knew was right. Yep. The first meeting, he understood it. Because a lot of the actors that she met with, because there was a lot of interest in the project, they all wanted to know what Bateman's motivation was. They wanted to have backstory. They wanted to have more to go on and Bale realized immediately that there was nothing there yeah that that, that was not what this was and they just clicked and then Lionsgate purchases the rights to do the film in 1998 and they didn't want Bale oh man so they want to bring on Leonardo DiCaprio wow who is interested in doing it coming right off of Titanic he's the biggest star in the world (laughs) what a movie that is they end up firing Mary Heron because she refuses to make the film without Bale. Wow. DiCaprio has a list of directors he wants to do it. He wants a big-time director. He wants either Danny Boyle, Stanley Kubrick, or Martin Scorsese to direct it. They end up with Oliver Stone. So now Oliver Stone is attached to direct this with DiCaprio. They also have Jared Leto in the mix, and Cameron Diaz is on board. This is to the point where they actually publicly announce it that this is going to happen holy shit however there's differences in vision amongst everyone (laughs) which contribute to leo's departure although people think that gloria steinham got in his ear and convinced him not to do it because his fan base was all 12 to 13 year old girls right and they're gonna see this movie and she was one of the staunchest critics against this book and the whole thing who knows why he left but he left which of course causes Oliver Stone to leave. Leo decides he's going to make The Beach with Danny Boyle instead. Mary Heron is rehired, but the studio is still against Bale. Wow. They offer it to tons of people, including Ewan McGregor, who Bale convinces not to take it, because Bale (laughs) wants this part. He's convinced that he has to do it. They offer it to Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Ed Norton, and Vince Vaughn. They all decline. So Lionsgate begrudgingly accepts Bale. The hilarious thing thing is the actual budget for the film was always going to be six million, but they would have paid DiCaprio twenty million. (laughs) So it would have been six million for the rest of the movie and then twenty million for DiCaprio. Good lord. They paid Bale fifty thousand. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That goes to show you where Christian Bale was compared to DiCaprio at that point in time. Not a draw. 
Bale's performance is straight method acting. Many co-stars assumed he was American. I assumed he was American. Yeah. Didn't really realize. I didn't even know that this was the same kid from the Newsies until way later. Wouldn't you love to see that? The times in between filming where he's like staying in this character. Yeah. You know, it's weird and annoying. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There's no way around that. It's annoying for everyone. Yeah. At the lunch break, he's still like doing this shtick. He based the character a lot on a particular Tom Cruise appearance on David Letterman where he thought that he has that smile and, and face, but there's nothing behind like the eyes. emptiness there, yeah. yeah. Which is funny because Cruise is in the novel. He lives in the same building as Bateman. Oh, wow. And there's actually a scene where he gets into an elevator with Tom Cruise and he, he doesn't know what to say. And he's like, I liked you and bartender. He calls cocktail bartender. <laughs> The other big inspiration was Nicolas Cage's performance in Vampire's Kiss. Okay. I don't know if you've ever seen that No, film. I haven't. It came out, I think, in 89, I want to say, or late 80s. And if you watch Vampire's Kiss, mm-hmm. it's a movie where he thinks he's becoming a vampire, but you're never really sure what's real and not real. Gotcha. It's a similar idea to American Psycho, at least as far as the execution of the movies i I wouldn't say that the the novel's really anything like vampire's kiss or anything like that but as far as a visual aesthetic and and sort of some of the the way that the movie plays out i would say vampire's kiss is very similar to american psycho i do think american psycho is ultimately a better film it's funnier but it's an absurd nicholas cage performance which is saying something because there are a lot of them definitely and this was an early one yeah yeah this is a good 15 plus years before the Wicker Man right. remake. Okay. <laughs> I only saw Vampire's Kiss for the first time, I think, last year. And my first reaction was like, this is similar to American Psycho. Okay. It feels kind of like it. You were dialing in on that. A lot of people told Bale that doing this part was career suicide. That's how hot this movie felt, I guess, at the time. It, of course, turned out to be the opposite. And Absolutely. Really blew his career up. Because I think going into 2000, I, I don't know that too many people were aware of Christian Bale. It took a I while wasn't. to get to yeah. Batman. It was five yeah. more years, but this was where I was like, oh, this dude is legit. Absolutely. He wanted to make sure that he had Brady Sinellis' approval for his portrayal, and so he met with him in character. And it so shook Ellis that in a later book called Lunar Park... Oh, yeah. The idea of Christian Bale as Patrick Bateman is essentially like a character in that book. It's okay. sort of hard to explain. Yeah, yeah. Because isn't lo- it like insanely meta? Yeah. That book? Yeah. Because he's writing it as himself, but instead of a gay man, he's a straight man who's but married. And it's like, oh, it's about it, his career. Isn't it a universe where like less than zero, the movie like came out or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty much his whole career is the same. Okay. Except yeah. he's a different guy, but he's also Brady Sinellis. But then. Patrick Bateman, but it's Christian Bale as Patrick Bateman is like a character who's like haunting him. It's very strange. <laughs> that is wild. But again, it kind of goes back to the method acting thing. Imagine having a sit down with someone where they're just staying in this character the whole time. Sony on the rocks. He's not good anymore. It's a cash bar. Like $25. You're a fucking ugly bitch. I want to stab you to death and play around with your blood. 
The year is 1987, which differs slightly from the book, which is set in 89. And I think there's one major reason for the change, which doesn't come until the end of the film because of who is president in 87 versus 89. I think that's a very conscious decision sure. on the part of our yeah, yeah. screenwriters. They wanted to work some of that into the movie. Patrick Bateman is a wealthy New York City investment banker seemingly living the good life. This is like that thing that did seem to exist where like all these people just had these high-paying jobs but did nothing seemingly. Well, yeah, I think that's intentional yeah, yeah. for this movie. You never but that see anyone doing anything. But that does feel like it existed up to a certain point in America. <laughs> I think it still exists. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> On Wall Street. For sure. This is the peak of yuppie culture. Gordon Gecko, greed is good, all that jazz. Patrick spends most of his time dining at popular, hard-to-get-into restaurants <laughs> while also keeping up appearances with his fiance. I would say, parentheses, supposed fiance. Right. Evelyn Williams, portrayed by Reese Witherspoon, and his wealthy circle of associates. Who all seem to almost like not really know each other. Most of whom he despises. <laughs> it's a weird role for Reese because by the time I saw this movie, which would have probably been 01 or 02, yep. Reese Witherspoon was an even bigger star. So looking back on this movie, it felt like the movie was older than it was because I was like, oh, this must have been before yeah, she was in anything. It's not exactly like a flashy role for her. She has some funny moments that she shines in, but it's not much. Yeah, and it's a controversial movie. Yeah, yeah. She's, I guess, trying to shed any teen star kind of a thing by being in a movie like this, but it's just an odd thing. You're two years after Cruel Intentions. I know. That is strange. I don't know. There's an obsession with appearances, both his own appearance physically and the appearance of normalcy. Oh, yeah. Which is something he obsesses over. Right. That's one of the things that's so clear and becomes more clear upon subsequent viewings is his complete inability to fit in with the people around him. Yeah. One of the recurring jokes of the movie is how everyone thinks he's such a dork. Yeah. And that's sort of the point is that he is a dork and that at least as far as the film is concerned, this fantasy life that he's living in his head is absurd and violent and crazy, but it's his only ability to possess any kind of power, I right. guess. Yeah. Because in real life, everyone thinks he's just a spineless. Doofus. Yeah. Although he landed Evelyn, who's right. kind of a babe. Absolutely. I don't really understand why she's with him. But there's this mechanical, soulless existence and. Everyone who operates in this world takes part in this strange interchangeability where there's this constant confusion of names and who's who. Right. No one seems to know who he is, but he also confuses other people all the time and Which, they confuse other people yeah. and it's it kind of plays into like where the movie ends too. Right. And it's also a statement on how all of these people are the same and it yeah, doesn't right. matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though they're like all kind of in this constant battle with each other to one up with whatever it is, the suit, the business card, yeah. which restaurant we can get a reservation at. But yeah. Yeah, like, but they don't realize that they're all the same. Yeah, they all yeah. have the same hair. They all have the same suits. They all work in the same places and do the they, same things. Even though like no matter how much money they're putting into it, they are just generic. Yeah. His crew, you have Justin Thoreau yeah. as Bryce, Josh Lucas as McDermott, 
Bill Sage as Van Patten. I enjoy Thoreau's dancing yeah. at the beginning. Where he's like, I don't even know what he's doing. I know. <laughs> I know. It's funny seeing Thoreau again right after doing Mulholland Drive because even though I wouldn't really compare this movie to Mulholland Drive, there's a little bit of the crossover of what's reality here. Yeah, that was definitely a big vibe in the late 90s, early yeah, 2000s. Yeah. I don't know that anyone quite did it as well as Mulholland Drive, but there are a lot of them. Definitely. Vanilla Sky yeah, is for one sure. that we did on right. the show, but there's other ones that we probably will do too at some point. Right away, though, we are treated to some violent outbursts as far as what Patrick Bateman says, and it seems that some characters don't hear what he's saying and never react to it. Yeah, almost everyone. <laughs> Except for the dry cleaning yeah. woman. But I mean, when they're in the group settings, though, certainly no one is picking up what he's saying or just, yeah, like you said, don't react to it. building on West 81st Street, on the 11th floor. My name is Patrick Bateman. I'm 27 years old. I believe in taking care of myself, in a balanced diet, and a rigorous exercise routine. In the morning, if my face is a little puffy, I'll put on an ice pack while doing my stomach crunches. I can do a thousand now. I use a deep pore cleanser lotion. In the shower, I use a water-activated gel cleanser. Then a honey almond body scrub. And on the face, an exfoliating gel scrub. Then I apply an herb mint facial mask which I leave on for 10 minutes while I prepare the rest of my routine. I always use an aftershave lotion with little or no alcohol because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. Then moisturizer, then an anti-aging eye balm followed by a final moisturizing protective lotion. There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction. But there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. One of the more iconic sequences in the film is this exhausting morning routine that Patrick does every day. His whole shower routine and all of the different moisturizers and cleansers and this, that, and the other thing. And it's just endless. <laughs> yeah. This slavish devotion to physical appearance and superficiality. But he tells us that there's just nothing there. Right. So it's almost as if all of this time and effort is because this is what 
he thinks that he needs to do to fit in and seem normal. Yeah, yeah. But he doesn't really care the same way that your typical superficial person would. Yeah, So he's yeah. almost like taking it to this extreme level. Well, a big part of the movie is him not getting a feeling out of basically anything. And then when he makes these declarations, it's just juxtaposed against this buoyant 80s soundtrack. Yeah. It goes from, there's just nothing there. Right. And then, walking on sunshine yeah. starts. <laughs> but that is one of the funny quirks of the character, is not having feelings for seemingly anything, going through this aimless competition with society, just because he feels like that's what he's supposed to do. But he does have insanely emotional connection to the music (laughs) but only the most lame 80s superficial pop music (laughs) yeah the most plastic music you could come up with yeah though establishing shots of new york city are used throughout the film most of it was actually shot in toronto patrick's secretary gene oh yeah chloe sevigny played by our show favorite yeah chloe sevigny patrick with the helpful wardrobe advice for her Right away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's a little bit of a Me Too vibe going on here. Yeah, well, you could pretty much say that about Anything. the 1980s yeah, right? in general. <laughs> yes. You never see Patrick or anyone else in his inner circle working, and I, I thought that it was sort of like Mad Men, but without the ads. Yeah, It's, right. all, it's like all the other stuff. It's like the clients are never coming in. Except instead of drinking booze, he's listening to his Walkman. <laughs> And lots of chocolate truffles, Godiva, and oysters on the half shell. I'm trying to listen to the new Robert Palmer tape, but Evelyn, my supposed fiance, keeps buzzing in my ear. Any leave of it, we'll get any leave of it. And we'll have to get someone to videotape. Patrick, we should do it. Do what? Get married, have a wedding. No, I can't take the time off work. Your father practically owns the company. You can do anything you like, silly. I don't want to talk about it. I hate that job anyway. See why you just don't quit. Because I want to fit in. The scene in the back of the cab with Evelyn when he's trying to listen to the Robert Palmer tape is hilarious. It's a hilarious scene, and the whole movie is hilarious, as we've been saying, but there's a self-consciousness to it. You know Patrick is despicable, even before he commits any of these crimes that we see. Right, right. The way he treats Gene and Evelyn, but the obliviousness of his behavior is so funny. Yeah. It's undeniable. They're hilarious in the back of the cab. He's so annoyed with Evelyn, and then it cuts to them walking into the restaurant and he's narrating to us, I'm on the verge of tears (laughs) because he thinks that their table isn't going to be good. (laughs) I do understand that feeling though, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I can't see you caring that much about the table. You're mostly on the verge of tears because you want to go home or... I've had some bummer seating situations. (laughs) You're always trying to impress (laughs) your social group. That's right. We learn about the various affairs amongst the social group, none of which seems to phase 
Patrick. He thinks that Evelyn's fucking Bryce, but he's fucking... Seemingly endless amounts of women. Courtney. Yeah. He's fucking Courtney, played by Samantha Mathis. Amongst the group, when certain subjects arise, Patrick starts vomiting out this blanket statement about all these social causes. And (laughs) he's talking about apartheid and the homeless and all this stuff, and they're just looking at him. And it's, it's just like he's reciting something. Right, right. And there's nothing behind his words, which is sort of prescient for... Modern times, I think, sure. especially in the Twitter age the when people can just sort warriors, of yeah. say anything and it doesn't mean anything. But this is really about like the surface level versus the primal urges underneath. And that's sort of the constant battle that we see encapsulated in a character like Patrick Bateman, who will turn everything up to a level that is completely unacceptable and, and socially horrific and would get somebody arrested. But the idea is still important even if this is almost like a cartoonish caricature version of it because i think in a culture like the heightened new york city wall street 80s there's sort of a sexual eroticism tied into money and tied into what's going on and the consumerism of every style yeah and there is a hint of trouble beneath the surface he encounters a woman on the street and then you cut to him at the dry cleaners with bed sheets (laughs) with these giant red stains (laughs) cranberry juice on the one hand you think is this a cop-out to avoid the violence of the book but on the other hand in terms of building attention within yeah, the film you're it's like brilliant editing really you're confused yeah. you're thinking did he murder this woman well we didn't see anything it seems suspicious yeah we know the title of the film <laughs> right we know the reputation I, of the film i would so say the woman that he sees at the dry cleaners seems suspicious of <laughs> concerned right. although she wants to hang out with him so yeah, bad yeah next week i can't next week i'm busy what about saturday next saturday and she says yes he looks at his watch can't (laughs) in his house he's got porno on the television just casual casual porno playing he's trying to hang out with courtney who's dating this doofus carruthers one of their frenemies the one that he particularly despises right he's out of town so he's trying to orchestrate something he lures her in with dorcia dorcia Uh is the it's like the the uh, highest level of achievement in this movie (laughs) like the white buffalo or getting res getting a res at dorcia (laughs) however patrick's unable to score a reservation in fact he gets laughed at when he calls asking for a reservation at 8 or 8 30 but courtney's so fucked up on drugs that she doesn't know the difference he just takes her wherever Like a place, like they're literally putting the restaurant name on the menus. (laughs) One of the things that is definitely fascinating about both the novel and the film, and particularly Christian Bale's portrayal and inspiration for the character of Patrick Newman, is the association with Donald Trump, a figure that in the 80s would have sort of fit into this world. And there are a couple references in the film where he thinks that he sees Trump's car and then... Ivana. He thinks he sees Ivana Trump, and then the last scene of the film seems to be outside of Trump Towers when he's calling Gene at the end. And right, the book has a lot of references to Trump as well, and I think that Trump was an inspiration to Christian Bale as far as his character finding the character of of Patrick Bateman. 
it keeps this movie and this idea and this story relevant in a way that I don't think anyone would have predicted even when the film came out. Right, right. 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago. Patrick, thanks so much for looking after Courtney. Dorcia, how impressive. How on earth did you get a reservation there? Lucky, I guess. That's a wonderful suit. Don't tell me, don't tell me, let me guess. Mm, Valentino Couture. Uh-huh. Mm. looks so soft. Your compliment was sufficient, Louis. Hello, Halber Stram. Nice tie. How the hell are you? Alan has mistaken me for this dickhead Marcus Halberstram. It seems logical because Marcus also works at PNP and in fact does the same exact thing I do. He also has a pension for Valentino's suits and Oliver Peoples' glasses. Marcus and I even go to the same barber, although I have a slightly better haircut. So how's the ransom account going, Marcus? It's, uh, it's all right. Really? That's interesting. It's not, uh, it's not great. Oh, well, you know. So how's Cecilia? She's a great girl. Oh, yeah. I'm very lucky. Mm-hmm. Hey, Alan. Congratulations on the Fisher account. Thank you, Baxter. Listen, Paul, squash. Call me. What, Friday? No can do. I got an 8.30 res at Dorcia. Great. Sea urchin ceviche. Dorcia on Friday night, how'd he swing that? I think he's lying. A gram? New card. What do you think? Whoa. Very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman, but that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. Jesus. That is really super. How do nitwit like you get so tasteful? I can't believe that Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. But wait. You ain't seen nothing yet. Raised lettering. Pale Nimbus. White. Impressive. Very nice. Mm. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Subtle off-white coloring. A tasteful thickness of it. Oh my god. It even has a watermark. Something wrong? Patrick? You're sweating. At a business meeting, Patrick and his associates flaunt and compare their business cards. And this is absurdist <laughs> to the max. Absolutely. It's so off the rails, crazy. The, the most memorable scenes. Of course, this scene itself is ripe for the picking for memes and reaction gifts and all kinds of crazy stuff. If you look closely, acquisitions is spelled incorrectly on all the cards. Okay. In mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. <laughs> Enraged by the superiority of his colleague, Paul Allen, played by Jared Leto, his card, Patrick kills a homeless man. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not funny, but it's just, a, I mean, come on. The fact that the that's reaction. the way he's reacting to a business card. I don't even know if it's Paul Allen's card that pushes him over the edge because it seems like he's upset. Everybody's. 
that Bryce prefers Van Patten's car to right. his, even. <laughs> I think it's a litmus test for yeah. a viewer. For the, it, it depends on how you react to this as, as far as if you're going to get this movie right. and appreciate it on that level. Obviously, there's the titillation factor. Yeah. There's some threesomes and there's some violence totally. that you can hook onto. But as far as getting the movie on that level, if you're not appreciating the humor of this scene, then you're probably not going to see the the satire of it. Right. And the mood and the vibe of it were definitely throwing me the first time I saw this. But like I said, I was expecting something a little bit different, not really knowing any of the backstory. I didn't know much about this. Well, I had an image in my head of Christian Bale killing women running around mostly naked with a chainsaw that so, was yeah you're thinking a modern day texas chainsaw massacre something, something yeah right more violence more horror and then you have this scene where he's like losing his mind about business cards sweat <laughs> so pouring they said that bale had so much control over his body that he could start sweating wow for this scene on wild cue. but I, I i don't know if that's just yeah, urban yeah. legend or who knows <laughs> The scene where he actually kills the homeless man is brutal, especially the dog stomp, which seems almost gratuitous. And then you cut to spa day, (laughs) (laughs) just getting a facial, enjoying the spa. He tells us that he has no emotions except greed and disgust and bloodlust on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip, is what he tells us. Oh, yeah. So he's got a good prediction there. We're jumping into his life, us, the viewers, at a time where business is about to pick up. (laughs) Yes. Patrick and Paul Allen, who continually mistakes Bateman for another co-worker, as pretty much everyone except his core group seems to. I did notice that his group knows he's Bateman. Right. McDermott, Bryce, they call him Bateman. But everyone else, and Evelyn, obviously, but everyone yes. else seems to not know exactly who he is. There's several different people he gets confused for. Patrick and Paul Allen make plans for dinner, although, like I said, Allen thinks he's somebody else. The resentment within Patrick continues to grow and fester. I don't know. I mean, I know this is a lifestyle that is just not us in general, but I really can't imagine myself going to like a nice high-end dinner with just another dude. It just seems like a weird thing. All the time. Yeah. Every night. Well, I guess that's a part of the lifestyle. Right. They go out to dinner and seemingly spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Just per meal. From food that they're not even eating. Yeah. Every night. All the time. Right. Wild. (laughs) Paul is able to score reservations at Dorcia on a Friday, for fuck's sake. So you know that it's really burning his ass. Oh, yeah. Paul Allen is... All that is wrong in the world as far as Patrick is concerned. <laughs> Although that's what he wants to be. Well, all that's wrong with his life, right. I would say. Yeah. Marcus Halberstram for two at seven. No, I want to know. Okay, I came here for the cilantro crawfish gumbo, all right? Which is, after all, the only excuse one can have for being in this restaurant, which is, by the way, almost completely empty. I'm very sorry, sir. J&B straight and a Corona. Would you like to hear the Double absolute martini. Yes, sir. Would you like to hear the specials? Not if you want to keep your spleen. This is a real beehive of activity, Halberstram. This place is hot. Very hot. Listen, the uh, mud soup and charcoal arugula are outrageous here. Yeah, well, you're late. Hey, I'm a child of divorce. Give me a break. 
I see they've omitted the pork loin with lime jello. We should have gone to Dorcia. I could have gotten us a table. Nobody goes there anymore. Is that Ivana Trump? Jeez, Patrick. I mean, Marcus, what are you thinking? Why would Ivana be at Texarkana? So, uh, wasn't Rothschild originally handling the Fisher account? How'd you get it? Well, I could tell you that, Halberstram. But then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Uh, uh, great tan, Marcus. I mean, really impressive. Where do you tan? Salon. I've got a tanning bed at home. You should look into it. And, uh, uh Cecilia. How is she? Where is she tonight? Cecilia's, uh, well, you know, Cecilia. I think she's having dinner with, um, Evelyn Williams. Evelyn. Great ass. Goes out with that loser Patrick Babin. What a dork. <laughs> Another martini, Paul. Patrick manipulates Paul into getting wasted, brutally kills him with an axe. I know Paul is wasted, like you said, but really not paying too much attention to the details of Bateman's apartment. (laughs) But why would he think this is going to happen? Yeah, I know, but the apartment is just like so sterile, and then there's these (laughs) newspapers all laid down. What do you have, a dog? Yeah. A pooch? (laughs) Patrick then leaves a message on Paul's answering machine claiming that Alan has gone on a business trip to London. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Yeah. (laughs) Probably one of the other more memorable scenes from this movie. This song playing, the way that he's acting leading up to swinging the axe. Yeah, he's putting on a raincoat too. Right. Is that a raincoat? (laughs) I guess Bale improvised the moonwalk with the axe. And as he's swinging the axe down and, and killing him, he's screaming about the reservations at Dorsey. <laughs> he's killed this man. He's now trying to cover it up. He's going over to Paul's apartment to stage a, a situation where it looks like Paul has left. All right. There's a moment of sheer panic when I realize that Paul's apartment overlooks the park. Yeah, I And know. it's obviously more expensive than mine. The ghost of Paul continues <laughs> to haunt him because then later the girls over the apartment tell him it's nicer than his. Just that pregnant pause when he says there's a moment of sheer panic and you're like, okay, finally, he's going to react like a normal person. Yeah, right. He's panicking because he just killed somebody. And then he goes, when I realize that Paul's apartment overlooks the park. <laughs> Enter private investigator Donald Kimball, played by Willem Dafoe. He's been hired to look into the disappearance of Paul Allen. This was always confusing to me. Yeah, well, once you start getting into, like, what happens and what doesn't happen, it's weird how this character fits into it. Yeah, it does seem like the world is cleverly constructed to fit along with what's going on. Right. In his mind. Like yeah, his yeah. mind is sort of molding to fit what's really happening. So some of this stuff is real, but then his fantasies seem to be built around it. So it's possible maybe someone mentioned, like, hey, where'd Paul Allen go? Right. Where's he been? And then he constructs this thing around it. It turns into a whole thing where it's like, oh, yeah, he actually is in London. Whatever. Who sure. knows? That's the thing. There is an Although, ambiguity to right. it. The whole thing, not to jump all the way to there, but when they first talk about somebody seeing him in London... Then they're like, but it was somebody else. And then the fact that the lawyer doesn't know that it's Bateman 
could imply that it wasn't actually Paul Allen. Oh, yeah, like, I think know? that... That's like the ambiguity there. Yeah, I think that Mary Heron never really wanted it to be one way or the other. Yeah. I just think that ultimately the movie seems more definitive than the book. The book I agree. seems way well, more ambiguous. Not that ambi- I read the ambiguous. book, but upon watching the movie, it feels like you are supposed to buy that Paul Allen really is in London and not dead. But I don't think that's the intent. Mm, yeah, I don't know. They made some choices that really swing it towards a fantasy. Uh, agreed. Well, there's definitely huge parts of it that are fantasy. Yeah, that's the thing. Right. Once you start going down that road, it could be that some of this stuff is fake, or maybe he is killing some people, but he's exaggerating it to be grander in yeah, his yeah. head. You, don't, I mean, you don't know. Right. It's hard, it's hard to say. For all of Defoe's scenes, Mary Heron instructed him to play each one in three different styles. One take as if he is suspicious of Patrick Bateman, one as if he is clueless as to Bateman's guilt, and a third as if he's undecided. She would then blend them together, using bits of each to keep the audience off guard. And when you think about it, knowing that, it becomes obvious. Because when I first watched this Uh movie... I had a hard time reading what his character thinks. I right, would always right. be like, does he think that he did it or not? Yeah. It's hard to tell because he acts so different from one sentence to another. Right. But the thing I was getting to that I was confused by more than anything else, which was much simpler than where we went, is that I didn't realize that he was supposed to be just a private investigator. Dude, same, I thought he was like a legitimate cop. Literally, this viewing was the first time that I actually picked up on that, that he was just hired to look into this and it's not an official police investigation which explains the more casual nature right he's pulling out a huey lewis cd at one point yeah <laughs> have you heard this obviously i'm gonna enjoy christian bale working out while watching texas chainsaw massacre <laughs> which as you guessed is a little bit of a foreshadow right. i i would imagine as to what we're gonna see after kimball interviews patrick for the first time patrick picks up a street-walking prostitute that he decides he's going to call Christy. And then he also calls for a blonde call girl who he names Sabrina. He's a little bit unhappy with how blonde Sabrina is, but good enough, I guess. <laughs> yeah. This time, instead of Huey Lewis in the news, he starts giving a spiel about Genesis and Phil Collins as he instructs the women on what to do. It's completely insane. <laughs> Just completely insane. This would be me, except I'd be like discussing the differences between the Friday the 13th movies or something. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like Phil Collins? I've been a big Genesis fan ever since the release of their 1980 album, Duke. Before that, I really didn't understand any of their work. It was too artsy, too intellectual. It was on Duke where, uh, Phil Collins' presence became more apparent. I think Invisible Touch is the group's undisputed masterpiece. It's an epic meditation on intangibility. At the same time, it deepens and enriches the meaning of the preceding three albums. Christy, take off the rug. Listen to the brilliant ensemble playing of Banks, Collins, and Rutherford. 
You can practically hear every nuance of every instrument. Sabrina, remove your dress. In terms of lyrical craftsmanship, sheer songwriting, this album hits a new peak of professionalism. Sabrina, why don't you uh, dance a little? Take the lyrics to Land of Confusion. In this song, Phil Collins addresses the problems of abusive political authority. In Too Deep is the most moving pop song of the 1980s about monogamy and commitment. The song is extremely uplifting. Their lyrics are as positive and affirmative as uh, anything I've heard him rock. Christy, get down on your knees so Sabrina can see your asshole. Phil Collins' solo career seems to be more commercial and therefore more satisfying in a narrower way. Especially songs like In the Air Tonight and uh, Against All Odds. Sabrina, don't just stare at it, eat it. But I also think that Phil Collins works best within the confines of the group than as a solo artist. And I stress the word, artist. This is Susudio, a great, great song. Personal favorite. They have a threesome. He pulls out the video camera. I know that they're sex workers, but it seems weird that they're so okay with the camera being involved and they're actually like doing a show for it. They're like waving to the camera at one point. It was a pre-internet age. Yeah, that's true. Who was going to see this? That's right. Yeah. Good point. One of the things they had to change was when he says, like, get on your knees so Sabrina can look at your asshole. Uh-huh. Or show Sabrina your asshole or whatever. They changed it to show Sabrina your ass. Yeah. <laughs> that and was, like, one of the things they had to change to get an R rating. One of the more memorable lines immediately following that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't just look at it, eat it. Yeah, I do remember being shocked <laughs> at that line. The first time. I was like, wow. Yeah, I, I would say that 21 years ago, ass-eating wasn't quite on the I the menu for a lot of people probably in terms didn't of even main real, realize that was something culture. that was done at that point. <laughs> I had heard rumors. Yeah. But it, it yeah. This validated the rumors. <laughs> You're like 12 years old watching this with your parents, <laughs> like asking them, like, yeah. what does that mean? And they're like, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but even in the threesome with two women, there's this rampant narcissism where it's all about his body and him, and he's posing in some of the more memorable, <laughs> hilarious yeah. segments where he's like flexing and yeah. posing while fucking them. And, you know, fair enough, but things do take a darker turn we don't see it but there is some abuse implied i don't know exactly what it's suggested that he does he at one point has a coat hanger and then there are some noticeable scratches right. on sabrina's shoulder but the two women are able to leave bloodied yeah. and beaten up a little bit although it's also weird there's a quick shot of them all actually sleeping together for a little bit i guess in recovery they out. Yeah. yeah they're ready to leave and he's like we're not done the fact that he doesn't feel any joy from anything helps his sexual stamina. It probably would be <laughs> quite a ride. <laughs> he is a stud. If they have a good personality and they're not great looking, then who fucking cares? Well, let's just say hypothetically, okay? What if they have a good personality? 
I know, I know. There are no, no girls, girls with, with good, good personalities. personalities. <laughs> good personality consists of a chick with a little hard body who will satisfy all sexual demands without being too slutty about things and who will essentially keep her dumb fucking mouth shut. The only girls with good personalities who are smart or maybe funny or halfway intelligent or talented, though God knows what the fuck that means, are ugly chicks. Absolutely. And this is because they have to make up for how fucking unattractive they are. Do you know what Ed Gein said about women? Ed Gein, maitre d' canal bar? No, serial killer, Wisconsin in the 50s. And what did Ed say? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out and talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And what the other part of him think? <laughs> what her head would look like on a stick. There's a crucial scene here, which is unfortunately super offensive, but also hilarious with the, the guys all hanging out and discussing women and whatnot. Oh, yeah. And Bateman accidentally attributes a quote to Ed Gein about wondering what it would be like to take a girl on a date, but at the same time, what her head would look like on a stick, which is actually... Which he's just losing it. <laughs> yeah, everyone's like, what the fuck? It's actually a, a line from... Edmund Kemper, who was famously portrayed in season one of Mindhunter, but not Ed Gein, who is one of the inspirations for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But that also plays into the wrong identity and mistaken identity of the whole movie and everyone right. confusing everyone. Yes. But as a result of that, I think people think that it is actually Ed Gein, so it's, it's been wrongly attributed since because of this movie. I see. But it's a crucial scene because outside of... Bateman's murderous nocturnal activities, you understand that these people are monsters. The way that they talk is horrifying. Right. And you can see why Heron and Turner yeah. wanted to make this movie. They see people worthy of satirizing. These and people making are fun of. worse than serial killers. Maybe not worse than serial <laughs> killers, but they're pretty terrible. Yeah. But that's sort of the idea, is that the next logical step beyond what these people are is we act as if women and people don't matter but what if they really didn't matter right we could do whatever we want yeah the only way you can one up from here is to be a serial killer this is an illumination on these types of men it's lifting up the rock and showing us what's underneath patrick's colleague lewis carruthers the one that is actually dating courtney or engaged to courtney lewis who patrick particularly despises reveals a new business card that inspires a fresh meltdown. <laughs> a lot of meltdowns over oh, business yeah. cards. This one's even better. Patrick follows him into the bathroom at this fancy restaurant and starts to strangle him. <laughs> but Lewis mistakes the attempt for a sexual advance and declares his love for Patrick. <laughs> Backfires. Which causes Patrick to panic and flee, saying the iconic line, I have to return some videotapes. <laughs> After washing his hands in the sink with his gloves right. on, which is a nice touch. This would have been a tougher murder to pull off Yeah, in a public restroom. You don't really know where he's going with this at this point. It could be an early indication that none of this is real because yeah. what would have been the result here? Or maybe you could interpret it that a lot of it isn't real, but this is real, and that's that's why it doesn't happen. Right. He can't decide what's real and not real, so he thinks that he can do this, and then he doesn't do it. And Kimball returns, seeking Patrick's whereabouts on the night Paul Allen disappeared. 
they make plans to meet up again in a week. Yeah. I don't know why. So basically, like, think about where you were and let me know in a week. That's yeah, like the agreement that's being made here. Weird. Yeah. After murdering a model he meets in a club, Patrick invites his secretary, Jean, to dinner, suggesting that she meet him at his apartment for drinks. And the sad, pathetic thing is that this seems like the moment she's been waiting for. Poor, poor Jean. Right. What's her deal? What is going, like, daddy issues? Like, what is going on with her? I don't know. Not getting the right attention, it seems. You kind of get the feeling like there maybe is a boyfriend, and she, sure. but she's just waiting for something like this to yeah. happen with Patrick because she seems to worship him, which is so bizarre because he's such a dork. Yeah, I know. Listening to fucking Lady in Red in his office <laughs> with his Walkman on. But he is her boss, so there's just that power thing going on. Yeah. She sort of sets him off because he's like, well, you can pick anywhere you want. I'll get a reservation. Don't worry about it. It's up to you. And she says, Dorcia. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's doing the crossword puzzle and he just keeps filling in everything meat and bone, meat and bone. <laughs> Which is a funny shot. <laughs> he calls Dorcia. They tell him that he can't get a reservation, but he just keeps talking and acting like he did get one. Although she is picking up on the fact that he didn't give a name. Oh, they know me. <laughs> She's not suspicious enough not to come because in his apartment later, Patrick plans to kill Gene with a nail gun, but stops after Evelyn calls and leaves a message yeah. on his answering machine. I do remember the first time watching this, the nail gun thing was tense for me, because I'm like, I don't want to see this. <laughs> I don't want to see her get shot with this nail gun. Poor, sad, pathetic yeah. Gene. Right. Gene does escape unharmed and unaware of what's gone on. In this scene, there's a lot going on here. There's a head in the refrigerator. <laughs> it's not actually the model. It's another woman. Which I think is one of the cool things that you can do with a book adaptation. You can just sort of reference how there's much more to sure. it. Even when he gives that insane confession at the end, he's talking about stuff that you didn't even see in the movie. Oh, right. He's just going on and on and on and on. <laughs> he doesn't know how many people he's killed. Could be 20, could be 40. There's some implied cannibalism. There's the head in the refrigerator, and then he mentions it later more explicitly. But it's, He's dabbling in cannibalism. That stuff is part of the more he, intense descriptions in the book. It's definitely more yeah. clear that in, that's what's going in, on. In this, it doesn't really seem like he's fully committed to cannibalism yet. He's still kind of testing the waters. <laughs> it's interesting, though, that he has this discussion with Gene after the Evelyn call, and he's talking about willpower, and she thinks that he's talking about making a move on her, having sex with her, pursuing something with her when he's in a relationship with Evelyn that he sort of lied about. Right. When in reality, we as the audience think he's talking about the urge to kill her, and that seems to be the joke, but it's still interesting either way. Sure. Because it's implying that he knows that it's wrong, that there's almost some part of him that doesn't want to do it, which is interesting because that's not ever apparent at any other point in the entire movie. He never seems to have any conscience or anything. Correct. So I'm not really sure what's going on in this scene. Yeah, that is weird. It's a little bit of a departure. Patrick has that lunch with Kimball. Is Patrick in the clear? Has Paul Allen really been spotted in London? Doubts start to creep in, and the uncertainty of it all seems to somehow make it worse for Patrick. Right. <laughs> the fact that he doesn't know now what he did and didn't do seems to actually upset him even more than actually being a serial killer. Well, yeah, and... 
as confident as he's been, minus these little moments of panic, he's definitely started to unravel as the movie's going on. Oh, yeah. His ability to sort of keep his cool is just consistently fading away. Well, he warned us that the mask of sanity was starting to slip. And we see it. I do think that the movie is supposed to take place over a couple of months, which is sort of hard to tell, but it makes sense because we see him kill Paul Allen and then all of a sudden there's an investigator. Who's like willing to take weeks in between questions. Yeah, the next day he shows up, it it wouldn't make any sense. So obviously time would have had to have gone by before an investigator is involved. And I think it's just sort of condensing things down. The time frame in the book is a lot longer. I think it's supposed to be a year or something. Okay. Patrick somehow convinces Christy, the, the streetwalker, to return for round two despite her last trip to his apartment leaving her in need of medical attention, the need for more money is so depressing. I know. It's a sad element to this movie. It's something that you don't even notice or think about too much when you're younger, though I guess times change. and sure. Younger people might be more aware of that now, but just the societal class element to this film, right? where here's this guy, this animal, and he did something horrible to... Christy, we don't even know what. She's and now obviously... she's willing to just come back. Yeah, although reluctant. Her whole backstory or whatever life seems like pretty dark because, I mean, this corner that she's working, <laughs> yeah. just not a soul in sight. The I darkest mean, corner. It seems yeah. like a loading dock That's or right. something. There's no one around. It seems like a very dangerous place to work a corner. This time, Patrick brings Christy to Paul Allen's apartment which is seemingly an insane move since he is currently a missing person. <laughs> and and Patrick Bateman seems to be on the suspect list. If anybody was watching, this would really increase the suspicion. Christy says it's nicer than his other apartment, which really <laughs> burns Patrick up. Yeah. An acquaintance of Patrick's named Elizabeth is there too. This is the co-writer, Guinevere Turner, who had small parts in Chasing Amy and yeah. Dogma. Well, I think her friendship with Scott Mosier kind of inspired the idea of Chasing Amy. I would buy that. I think they met at Sundance. Uh, yeah, like on the indie on circuit. Clerks yeah. For that, uh, what was it called? Go Fish, I think okay. it was. Uh, that indie yeah. movie, which came out the same year as Clerks. Patrick drugs Elizabeth before having sex with her and Christy. After he kills Elizabeth, Christy tries to run, discovering multiple female corpses as she searches for an exit. Patrick chases her and then eventually has a chainsaw, which he drops on her as she flees down the building's staircase. Somehow this entire massacre does not rouse any other occupants in the building and the entire episode goes undetected and undiscovered. So there's a lot to get to here. First of all, Whitney Houston is the musical choice this time, which Elizabeth finds hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Him doing this whole, did you know, Whitney Houston's album simply entitled Whitney Houston. Is that what it is? Yeah. Had four number one singles. (laughs) Did you know that Whitney Houston's debut LP called simply... Whitney Houston had four number one singles on it. Did you know that, Chrissy? You you actually listen to Whitney Houston? (laughs) 
You own a Whitney Houston CD. <laughs> One of in one. <laughs> it's hard to choose a favorite among so many great tracks. But the greatest love of all is one of the best, most powerful songs ever written about self-preservation and dignity. This universal message crosses all boundaries and instills one with the hope that it's not too late to better ourselves. Since, Elizabeth, <laughs> it's impossible in this world we live in to empathize with others. We can always empathize with ourselves. It's an important message. Crucial, really. It's beautifully stated on the album. It's a Looney Tunes-esque scene that's so over the top. The House of Horror discovery process in Paul Allen's apartment is somewhat similar to the basement in Silence of the Lambs. Yes. And I think it actually is more like that in the book because I think there is a decomposing body in a tub or something. It's very similar. Oh, wow. Which they don't get to that. There's just like a nude woman all bloody on the floor of the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. And then there's some other macabre items before Christy makes out into the hall. One of the things that is apparent on a low-budget movie like this, once you become more astute and notice, the interiors don't look like the world that these people would inhabit. The apartments are nice. Yes. And they manufacture the views to look like they have these great views and everything. The hallways, the restaurants, the bathrooms at these restaurants, they don't really seem like that great a lot of the time. And you're just like, okay, I guess they had to find a place to make it look like it was a nice restaurant. (laughs) But yeah, Christy's running through the hall of this building, which doesn't seem like a building where people would live. Right. And she's banging on all the other doors and no one's answering. There's nothing happening. (laughs) No one around somehow. No one hears this chainsaw. Yeah. Makes a huge mess in the stairwell, blood everywhere. Oh, I know. This seems like it would take forever to clean up, and it's like right in a public area of the building. And of course, the idea that you could just drop this chainsaw from multiple stories up and it land while it's still on somehow and go right through. Yeah. (laughs) And then he sort of like draws a picture to let us know what happened. In an almost equally ridiculous scene, (laughs) Patrick breaks up with Evelyn calling off their engagement. She's just not understanding, not buying it at first. To us, the viewer, their relationship never seemed real anyway. Because while he's having a lot of sex, it never seems to be with her. Frankly, her reaction is as insane as anything Patrick's done thus far. (laughs) Sure. It's so over the top. I want a firm commitment. I think, um, Evelyn, that, uh, we've lost touch. Why? What's wrong? My need to engage in homicidal behavior on a massive scale cannot be corrected, but uh, I have no other way to fulfill my needs. We need to talk. Talk about what, Patrick? It's over, Evelyn. It's all over. Touchy, touchy. I'm sorry I brought up the wedding. Let's just avoid the issue, all right? Now, are we having coffee? I'm fucking serious. It's fucking over us. This is no joke. Uh, think we should see each other anymore but your friends are my friends and my friends are your friends 
I really don't think it would work. Something. I know that your friends are my friends, and, uh, and I, I've thought about that. You can have them. Really serious, aren't you? Yes, I am. What about the past? Our past? We never really shared one. You're inhuman. No, I'm in, I'm in touch with humanity. Evelyn, I'm uh, sorry, I just... Uh, you're not terribly important to me. Oh, no! 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 <laughs> I know my uh, behavior can be erratic sometimes. What do you want me to do? What is it that you want? If you really want to do something for me, then stop making this scene right now. Oh, God, I can't this. I'm leaving. I've assessed the situation, and uh, I'm going. Where are you going? Just leaving. But where? return some videotapes and he escapes the uncomfortable moment by saying i have to return some videotapes <laughs> patrick later uses an atm and sees a cat the atm displays the text feed me a stray cat this seems to really set off a chain of events that while other stuff you can certainly debate obviously the chainsaw thing seems surreal but i think everything from here on up until a certain point, feels like a fantasy. So he prepares to shoot the cat, seemingly into the ATM somehow. Not really sure how this was all going to go if the woman didn't get involved. Yeah, his delusions are definitely taking over. When an elderly woman confronts him, he shoots her instead. Police driving by see him, and they pursue, and there's a chase through the nighttime city streets. Patrick opens fire on the cops with a handgun, killing two officers and then blowing up a police car. He stares at his weapon in total confusion, seemingly an indication to the audience that this definitely can't be real. You're not just watching something that is stupid, where you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Because even the character in the film is looking at his gun and thinking, how the fuck did that just happen? Right. He then kills a security guard and a janitor in what seems like a random building before finally coming to his own work building. He's got one of these magic guns like Badlands. Just never runs out of bullets. Always a dead-on shot. He hides in his office and then calls Harold, his lawyer, frantically leaving a crazed confession claiming to have killed between 20 and 40 people. As I mentioned, he's referencing a lot of stuff that isn't in the film, although a lot of it is in the book, which further muddies the water as to figuring out what the fuck is going on. Right. I guess you could interpret it, though, that when he kills the homeless guy or the woman on the street with the bloody sheets, that that's not the first time, and this is just something that's been going on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Howard, it's Bateman, Patrick Bateman. You're my lawyer, so I think you should know I've killed a lot of people. Some escort girls in an apartment uptown. Uh, some homeless people, maybe five or ten. Um, an NYU girl I met in Central Park. I left her in a parking lot behind some donut shop. I killed Bethany, my old girlfriend, with a nail gun. Uh, and uh, some a man, of a some old faggot with a dog. <laughs> Last week, I, uh, I killed another girl with a chainsaw. 
<laughs> I had to. She almost got away. I don't know. Someone else there, I can't remember. Maybe a model, but she's dead too. And uh, Paul Allen. I killed Paul Allen with an axe in the face. His body is dissolving in a bathtub in Hell's Kitchen. I don't want to leave anything out here. I guess I've killed maybe 20 people. Maybe 40. Uh, I have uh, tapes of a lot of it. Uh, some of the girls have seen the tapes. I even, um... I ate some of their brains. Oh, and I tried to cook a little. Tonight, I, uh, <laughs> I just had to kill a lot of people. And, um, I'm not sure I'm going to get away with it this time. So, uh, I mean, Oh, I guess I'm a pretty, uh, I mean, I guess I'm a pretty sick guy. So, if you get back tomorrow, I may show up at Harry's bar. So, you know, keep your eyes open. The following morning, Patrick once again returns to Paul Allen's apartment to potentially dispose of the remains left there, but he finds it completely vacant in the process of being painted and for sale. Yeah, a little bit of a twist here. The realtor tells him that the apartment does not belong to Paul Allen before asking him to leave. He's certainly confused, and I would say we, the viewer, are as well. The scene always stuck out to me and felt weird. But in a good way. Yeah, yeah. It's got an odd vibe, and it really yeah. makes everything unclear as to what the fuck is going on. Even the confident nature of the real estate agent seems a little weird. Like, she's kind of able to impose her will on him. Yeah, well, she f- seems angry yeah. or annoyed in a way that is odd and right. threatening, almost. Yeah, and he kind of cowers to it a little bit. Yeah, I think when I was watching this for the first time your mind jumps to all kinds of stuff i I remember thinking did they clean up what he did and are almost like threatening him with like we know what went on here i don't know you're like because her tone is so weird seriously yeah like it feels like he's being shamed it's hard to read what is going on in this scene but that sends him into another meltdown where he's wandering the streets he calls gene he's completely unhinged just Say yeah. no. Now it's like getting to the point where he wants everybody to know what he's done. But no one will believe him right. or take it seriously. He can't figure out how to end this. Yeah. That's what it feels like. He wants it to end, but it won't end. Yeah, yeah. He thought that he was being chased up into his office and that there was a helicopter outside the window. And then all of a sudden he's just back in his apartment. Yes. And the day is beginning again. It's almost like Groundhog Day right. in a weird way. Patrick not coming into the office allows for the one scene in the entire film that doesn't feature him at all, 
when Gene snoops around his office <laughs> and finds a shit ton of detailed drawings of murder and mutilation in his journal. This is and the work day. day. Yeah. The drawings are horrifying and, and closer to a representation of what is in the book, I would say. Okay. That's probably closer to what happens in the book. Sure. But it is interesting because it's the one time that a character is able to fully see beyond the superficial facade. And it's the character that is sort of being presented in a, a, like a different innocent, class. Yeah. yeah, innocent, lower class. She's obviously not making as much money. She's almost separate from him in a way. And then no one else can see him for who he is because sure. there's this shield of superficiality. He's right. got the hair. He's got the suits. He's got the... Rolex and the great apartment and everything and then here's this moment where she's like what the fuck yeah. is this Patrick sees Harold the lawyer while out for drinks and he approaches him about the phone message and just like everybody else Harold confuses Patrick for somebody else and assumes the entire confession was just a joke believing Bateman to be too much of a dork <laughs> which is hilarious because it's you have to be cool to kill people. Sure. <laughs> Patrick insists that it's true and that he's Patrick Bateman and he actually killed Paul Allen. Yeah, and the lawyer's demeanor noticeably starting to change as this goes on. Yeah, and it it turns into this similar cold resistance to that of the realtor. Right. Where he's almost angry for a reason that we can't. Yes. Like there's this reaction of stop what you're doing. Right. Stop telling me the truth. Yeah. You could almost interpret it like that. Like, like I don't yeah. want to see the truth because I'm living in this other world. Harold says that he had dinner twice with Paul Allen in London just days ago, and Patrick is completely baffled and doesn't know how to respond. Yeah. <laughs> That's impossible. Same. <laughs> Why not, you stupid bastard? <laughs> There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me, and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. This confession has meant nothing. The movie ends with more narration as Patrick is sitting with his friends that he hates <laughs> behind him there you. is a sign that says this is not an exit which is the last sentence of the book and that's it the ambiguity of the film is a little less i think than the ambiguity of the book where it's much harder to tell there are still clues that make you think it's not real because right. if there wasn't you would just assume it is real so obviously there has to be something to cause ambiguity in the book sure but they seem to be pushing it more into the it did not happen vein for the movie, which is maybe a defense mechanism against some of the brutality of it. I don't know. Right. 
or if that's just an artistic choice. I don't really mind either way. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. I, I think whether or not he did it is almost irrelevant sure. to the movie. Right. It's not really what it's about anyway. Clearly, the change to 87 was made so that Reagan can be included at the end. They're obviously drawing some parallels totally. to Bateman and Ronald Reagan. They have Bryce pointing it out almost deliberately so. And then it ends, and you're sort of stuck in that world of what? uncertainty of like, well, what the fuck just happened? Yeah, yeah. And then as we talked about in the Rules of Attraction episode, Vanderbeek's character... Sean Bateman is the brother, younger brother of Patrick. There was a scene in the book, The Rules of Attraction, which is funny because The Rules of Attraction predates American Psycho by about four years. Yeah. But there is a scene in the book with Patrick, and then they shot that scene for the adaptation, The Rules of Attraction. They couldn't get bail. They end up cutting it. You can watch it on YouTube. It's pretty great that they cut it because it would have been stupid. Okay. It would have ruined it if you have someone else being right. Patrick Bateman. What that would like, have been a great random thing if Bale would have done just this scene for the movie, Rules of Attraction. Rules of Attraction only came out, what was it, two years yeah. later? Yeah. It's weird because it happened at that moment where I was more aware of movies and seeing movies in the theater. So I saw Rules of Attraction in the theater but like I said, American Psycho was just something that all of a sudden was on VHS. Like, I didn't even know it was released. Right, I was so yeah. oblivious to it. Same here. They've done various other adaptations. There was like a musical or, or some sort of a Broadway thing, which I think <laughs> was obviously fun. much more humorous. Yeah. Various Brady Sinellis projects are always bandied about for TV stuff, although I think that's mostly less than zero, but some other stuff as well. It's interesting. I know that Ellis considers Rules of Attraction to be his favorite of the adaptations. I think for me, it's pretty neck and neck Yeah, between the two. American Psycho, I think, grows on you the more you watch it. Totally. And you start to appreciate the satire even more. Yeah, I think I find American Psycho to be more entertaining, but I do really enjoy Rules of Attraction. Yeah, they're both pretty close. For me. I mean, of course, for me, I love Lesson Zero the most. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else with American Psycho? No, I think we got it. It's a nice quick watch, really. Yeah, they take a 400-page book and they really condense it down. And still seem to capture a lot of the message. Yeah, I think it's a really successful adaptation. And the Christian Bale performance is top-notch absolutely in a career w- filled with great performances it's it's this is still one of his best career defining really and it was part of his run of constantly changing his physical appearance to meet <laughs> which the seemingly needs of a role. never ended yeah because he really got into incredible shape for this movie i actually think he fixed his teeth like he completely changed his teeth for this movie he wanted to embody the part of patrick bateman wow all while getting paid 50k yeah that's commitment. Yep. Well, I guess he sensed that it was an opportunity to take things to the next step, even though people were telling him it would kill his career. Yep. Well, he was right. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Okay, so let's move on to recommendations. <laughs> wow 
the new intro music. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, I like it. Do you have any? I recently watched this movie, Blown Away. (laughs) (laughs) As in right before we started recording. Yeah. Great flick. Both Corys. (laughs) Blown Away. All right. (laughs) Are we really doing this? Blown Away, you can stream for free in a number of places. I would recommend Roku Channel because the commercials are less than some of the others. Sure. Because I tried watching it on Vudu, which I use a lot to rent movies. But if you watch one of the free movies on there, there's so many commercials that it's unwatchable to me. So you had texted me to watch this and told me that it was on Roku Channel. Is Roku Channel only available on Roku, or is it an app you can get on other things? I would imagine it's only on Roku, Okay, I don't know. My Roku is not like plugged in anywhere right now, so that was going to be a big hardship for me. But maybe. I yeah. don't know. Limited investigation by me after that. But I was definitely planning on seeing it at some point. But since you happened to get the... Hard copy delivered, and I showed up two hours early today. Um, <laughs> we had an opportunity to watch it, and boy, did it not disappoint. Nicole Eggert, Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, a made-for-TV film from 1993, <laughs> but one with a lot of nudity and right. sex, so it must have been on Showtime or HBO or something. Unbelievable. Totally. <laughs> An unbelievable Check it film. out wherever you can. In lieu of actually doing One Trashy Summer this year, there's your One Trashy Summer recommending <laughs> Blown Away, 1993. One Trashy Year. Not to be confused with 1994 Blown Away, which stars Jeff Bridges and Tommy Lee Jones. No, a no. different movie. This is the good one. <laughs> <laughs> I have two, and I just pulled them straight from my recent diary on Letterboxd to come up with them. One I just watched this past week, a film I'd never seen before. I actually watched it as part of the After Dark Neo-Noir Cinema Collection 1 box set from Imprint, the Blu-ray set. But you can watch it for free on Pluto TV or Crackle or rent it from somewhere. It's called One False Move, directed by Carl Franklin. It came out in 1992. The people you might know who are in it would be Billy Bob Thornton, Bill Paxton, who would go on to be in... A Simple Plan a few years later. But this is a a cool little crime thriller that I thought was really well done. I really enjoyed it. There's like a brutal crime in L.A., but then it connects to Arkansas, and there's some people on the run, and then cops looking for them. It's just really effective and well done. Billy Bob Thornton co-wrote the script. So I would check that out. I wouldn't rule out us doing it on the podcast someday. Eventually, I'm going to have Matt watch it. All right. I've been getting into Carl Franklin's films a little bit more. I was familiar with Devil in a Blue Dress, but I watched the Denzel movie, Out of Time, and then this movie recently. One False Move. And then also At Close Range, which you can check out on Hmm. HBO Max, 1986, directed by James Foley, starring Sean Penn and his brother Christopher Penn and Christopher Walken. And an assortment of other familiar faces and smaller parts. I'm trying to remember if this is something I've seen. It sounds familiar. It's a Pennsylvania mm. crime film. An estranged father reconnects with his son. His son is interested in the crime life and gets taken in, and then it sort of all goes wrong. And really effective movie, good performances, a really cool score. Nice. I enjoyed it. You can check that out on HBO Max. To neo noirish type films from the 80s and 90s, which is what I've been watching a lot of recently. And 
erotic thrillers and Excellent. crime thrillers yeah. and judicial thrillers and all these different kinds of forgotten yeah. genres of the 80s and 90s. That's what I liked about Blown Away because it was sort of like a teenage erotic thriller. <laughs> <laughs> the rare going into that territory. Yeah. It's sort of like a poor man's basic instinct, <laughs> yeah. but like not even poor man's, like a homeless man's basic yeah. instinct. <laughs> That's what's great about Tubi, even though neither... None of the movies I just recommended, including Blown Away, I don't think are on Tubi, but, but Tubi is great. A lot of movies of this ilk. Yeah. I can discover so much stuff for free. You don't even need to pay for streaming channels. If you just want to watch like random movies from the 80s and 90s that are somewhat entertaining, ridiculous, whatever, between Roku Channel, Crackle, Pluto TV, Tubi. Oh, yeah. There's so much good stuff. I've watched a ton of those movies so far this year. It's been a great source of random stuff. Because the streaming giants that all They all just trade the same material. Yeah, they all want to trade in movies that people care about. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm interested in movies that no one cares (laughs) about. (laughs) Okay, One False Move, At Close Range, Blown Away from 93. Check them out when you get a chance. I'm sure most people have already seen American Psycho. If you haven't, check it out. Follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever we're available. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like a sticker, let us know on Twitter, and we'll send that to you for free. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. As we said, it's going to be a light July, although we are recording our next episode today. Something we'll touch on when we actually record it in a minute, but we're taking things easy. We will be back full-time in August, but it's sort of our summer break for whatever reason. Right. Sort of recharging the batteries after that monstrous Mulholland Drive episode. Seriously. Still trying to recover. (laughs) Get back to square one. All right. Thanks for listening. Never seen you looking so lovely as you did tonight. I've never seen you shine so bright. Mm-hmm. Never seen so many men ask you if you wanted to dance. They're looking for a little romance. Give out half a chance. I have never seen that dress you're wearing. All the highlights in your hair that catch your eye I have been blind Lady in red Is dancing with me Cheek to cheek There's nobody here It's just you seen you looking 